Hello, and welcome to the ASGCA podcast, Insights. I'm your host, Mark Whitney. Today, we continue our conversations with those who are making a positive difference in the golf industry. We look at the challenges being faced and talk to the people meeting those challenges head on. Providing his insights today is Brad Klein. Brad is a longtime journalist specializing in golf course architecture and maintenance. A former PGA Tour caddy, he spent 28 years as architecture editor of Golf Week magazine. Brad was a founding editor of Superintendent News and was part of Golf Channel's Golf Advisor team. A past recipient of the ASGCA Donald Ross Award, Brad has authored nine books on golf architecture and history, including Discovering Donald Ross. Brad, thank you for joining us. Uh, morning. Um, you know, it's um, in a weird time. And um, <laughs> one, one of the things I find, I have more time free time than ever, and I'm busier than ever at the same time, but I guess because no one's sleeping, so. Brad, you've written several articles in recent weeks for the folks at MorningRead.com that are exploring uh, the unique times that we're living in and especially how it impacts the golf industry. Uh, like the rest of us, I know you've never seen times like uh, we've been experiencing here recently. Uh, it's obviously been a very strange, uh, I almost feel like I've been dragged into a bad horror movie and uh, we're all extras in this and we don't know where it's going. Um, so what I tried to do with a small slice of life, and uh, I have to say, no matter what I write about the golf industry, I know it's a small, insignificant part of the bigger tragedy and history that's unfolding. And uh, so I never lose touch with that. Uh, my mother's in a uh, assisted living in New York, and I'm terrified about what's happening down there. So, you know, keeping that in mind, um, I still think it's important to go about our daily lives and to see what we can salvage from them. And I think one of the things that's interesting about golf is it provides an interesting uh, way to uh, essentially uh, get through these times. Uh, it, it's, it's open on a big space. It can be played uh, with some considerable distance apart from each other. And uh, the superintendents and the pros have managed, I think, to find a way to make the game essentially what I call touchless, where the, the flags are stationary, the pins are maybe upside, the holes are upside down, the rakes are taken off. It's, it's possible, I think, to play golf without it looking crass and stupid. Uh, obviously, a lot of activities are not going on, but it's important for people to have some kind of uh, passive recreation, really, uh, hiking, walking, uh, and um, uh, swimming doesn't work. Basketball doesn't work. Going to football games doesn't work. Uh, but playing golf can be made to work under the right conditions. So I've been studying that. And I'm also very interested in how facilities are going to have to adjust because there's no question that as we move forward uh, and we find ways to, to manage uh, and uh, maybe partially lift some of the restrictions or at least carefully uh, accommodate to them, I think golf is going to, obviously, it's going to have to adjust. It's, as an economy and an industry, it's, it's been in a tough period. A lot of clubs and facilities struggle, but a lot of them, I think, have an opportunity to, to rework themselves and to reinvent, essentially, the, the golf experience. So I've been documenting that in, in my articles. And you mentioned sort of that, that, that continued uh, uh, changing nature of, uh, of especially clubs is, is an area that I know that you focused on, that looking at the financial challenges that they face, not just today and not just what might be faced going forward in the next 6, 12, 18 months, whatever it is that we choose, that we are facing together, uh, but even going back the last decade or so and having come out of the recession uh, to look at the, the changing financial nature of the club system. 
Yeah, they're, uh, you know, I'm, I'm concerned both with the private clubs and the public. Uh, there are basically 15,000 plus or minus a few golf facilities in the United States. There are f- only 4,000 private clubs. Everybody thinks private clubs dominate. They're actually just about a quarter of the total facilities. Uh, a lot of, I think there are about 2,500 municipal golf courses. There's quite a number of real estate, resort. They're all different in many ways, but they suffer from essentially high cost. Um, and it's obviously a difficult game. It's hard to keep people in the game. People uh, don't have enough time. They get frustrated. The younger generation doesn't have, it's always said that the younger generation, millennials, Gen Xers, Gen Yers, whatever, <laughs> Gen Zers, I guess, um, it's, it's sometimes claimed that there's a cultural uh, problem that they don't have the patience at the game. Actually, the issue is they don't have the income. Uh, they don't have the savings. They don't have the steady employment. Uh, they have a lot of debt. Uh, and uh, a lot of them are uh, have been making a living uh, kind of baristas or as, uh, you know, designers and graphic shops on their own, freelancing or actors and um, uh, kind of an informal market economy and also income distribution over the last 10 or 15 years hasn't favored uh, the bottom half of the country. So there are a lot of economic reasons why golf struggles. It's not just the, the inherent difficulty and complexity of the game. So uh, as a result, a lot of facilities are struggling. Uh, now, we know we're cl- uh, the, of that number of golf courses we have, roughly 15,000 facilities, we're losing on average about 170 to 200 a year. I think, and that's not a terrible thing. It is if you own the facility, but if you can convert it to real estate or commercial development, you know, it's a valuable piece of land. It has an alternative use. So, um, you know, your members as architects are busy. Some of them are, a lot of them are rebuilding courses. Some of them are converting courses to other uses. So um, that's part of the business and it's legitimate, but obviously uh, clubs have to adapt to a very difficult time. And I think what this latest pandemic has uh, exposed is the vulnerability of the industry and uh, they're going to have to scramble uh, because uh, they're losing uh, for now their clubhouse uh, operations food and beverage outside events charity uh, events and so on which tend to be fairly profitable and uh, they're down to if they're open they're open just for golf and maybe some takeout um, quick at the halfway house kind of a turn stand thing um, pro shops are closed. They're not doing business. They're not selling, or if they are, it's very limited, you know, one or two people allowed in the pro shop. And, um, what's interesting is the public courses are busy now because people want to play because they have a lot of free time. So there's an opportunity. And I think what is going to help is the idea that, okay, the, the industry is stressed. Uh, these clubs and facilities, uh, are trying to make ends meet, but the game is inherently healthy. It's outdoor recreation. It's proving to be amenable with social distancing, and I think that's a great selling point. So moving forward, there's an opportunity here to make more of the game, not in the competitive sense. I'm not referring to the PGA Tour and Tiger Woods and Mickelson. I'm not referring to national championships and and even amateur events and competitions. I'm just talking about people having fun and playing golf. And one of the great things that's going on now is that people are just thankful to play golf. And what I mean by that is, they don't worry about if, the, if their ball hits the pin and it bounces a foot away, they count it as in. Uh, if they're in a footprint in the bunker, maybe they move it, maybe they play it out. They're just playing golf. And the USGA, to their blessing, 
has enabled uh, golfers to post scores for handicap purposes uh, amenable with the, the new rules. So the new guidelines, I should say. So there's a great opportunity to sell and promote the game as just healthy, fun. And, you know, at private clubs, we're seeing people who used to, they used to bring guests and do business. And now they're just showing up and happy to play golf with people they never played golf with. I'm hearing about places where uh, husbands and wives are playing golf for the first time. Uh, and um, I think that's great. So we have a chance to kind of loosen the notion of what constitutes a club and a golf course and just let people play. And uh, I'm really thrilled to see that going. And people are walking too. This is the other thing that's amazing. I always make the analogy of these miracle flights from Fort Lauderdale to Hartford, Connecticut, where 20 people get on a wheel, use a wheelchair to get on the flight and they all walk off. I don't know what kind of drinks they're serving on the plane, but you know, the miracle cure, well, the miracle flight. Well, that's happening at clubs across the country. People who used to demand a cart now find they can walk, carry their bag, or push with a cart. All these old stuffy clubs that banned push carts because they thought it would look like a muni, they're letting them use it. And it's great. And um, so, you know, you have that going for the game. And I think those are all very positive uh, points moving forward. And a lot of what you said it is appears to be moving beyond simply anecdotal. Uh, there was a call earlier this week uh, with uh, some ASGCA leaders, and there was multiple references to what you just talked about, being out of the course, uh, seeing the number of folks at public facilities that want to just get out and play, and the number of couples that are out playing together, uh, partners or families uh, that, that have gotten out and played. Uh, that is really reinforcing some of these things that you're talking about. It's not uh, it's not just ones and twos that are out there. There appear to be stories uh, of people taking advantage of the opportunity to be outdoors right now. Uh, with what is also uh, a point worth touching on, I think, Brad, is this idea of a natural routing that comes at a golf course. Anybody who has walked into a, a grocery store or any type of service place uh, of late uh, is seeing uh, manufactured routing that's taking place. Uh, Forrest Richardson, our ASGCA vice president, mentioned this in a, in a conversation earlier this week. Uh, golf certainly allows for that literal natural routing to take place. Yeah, you have a lot of room to move. And um, so let's be clear. Some of it is simply because managing carts. I don't know what the, the number is traditionally or at least you know, the last few years. I'm going to guess, what, 70, 80 percent of rounds nationwide are, are riding. Uh, someone's got that number. I'm sure Club Car or um, Textron or somebody, Club Car or uh, Toro has that number. Anyway, let's say 70, 80%. Well, it's harder to manage a cart these days, first of all, because if you have two people sharing a cart, unless they're married or uh, living together uh, in the same household, uh, you've got some issues of uh, social contact and p potential uh, transmission of disease. So uh, that's not allowed. So uh, clubs have gone either to banning them because it's just too much trouble uh, to disinfect and scrub and all that stuff, or they're going to solo carts. So now I think solo carts are terrible because they isolate people, but I'm hearing about courses, say in Arizona, at real estate courses that are uh, considered to be what they call too hard to walk. And uh, you're seeing four carts in a foursome. Now that's not good. And I think uh, we're going to have to see some rethinking about that, particularly with uh, the TPC facilities, many of which are uh, cart, uh, require carts. So any of those facilities, I don't mean to pick on anyone, any facility that is traditionally wedded to a cart, golfers are going to have a choice between a solo cart or walking. 
And more and more people that I hear about and see are taking the walking option. So I think that's great for business. And if you're, if you're a manufacturer of light um, carry bags, great. If you're a manufacturer of a pull or push cart, great. And um, so, you know, we're going to have more variety in how the game is played. But I think more walking is wonderful. One of the things I do, by the way, Mark, I've been uh, Connecticut. We're allowed to play. I play strictly solo. I don't want to play golf with anyone because I'm just a little afraid. Uh, our daughter's a nurse. We hear a lot about the aerosol transmission of, 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 the, of the coronavirus. I try to stay 20 feet away from everybody. And um, so I'm a little bit of a nervous Nelly on a golf course. I just play by myself. Um, but, um, you know, you can find a place out there. And uh, what, I'm, what I'm doing is I'm carrying a light bag with, with uh, I think, eight clubs. And I never have the wrong club. And why is that? Because you just play and you adjust differently. It, interestingly enough, I have a set of eight clubs. I have three wedges. So that tells you how it goes. It'd be interesting. I was going to ask, though, two things. One, do you keep score? And two, are you concerned about specific distance from the hole when you're when you're eyeing up a shot then? Well, um, I keep score or try to. Uh, I've been posting scores. <clears throat> I've been playing a lot of nine hole rounds and I just put them together post. Maybe that's not legal, but whatever I'm doing it. Um, not every round, but um, if I'm playing the same course twice in the, in the same week, I'll play the front nine or the back nine. I can post the score there. Um, so I'm counting, you know, sometimes if one of the things I do though, is if people get too close or if there's a group ahead of me that I hate to wait in front, I'll just skip over and go to another hole. I know the course, it's a municipal course in my area that I, was involved in and I manage it on the town committee so I can kind of skip around and stay out of the way or sometimes I'll just play three four holes but the point is uh, it's uh, I, I I know my yardage is pretty well I'm an old caddy uh, so I but I hit a, I, I use a driver a seven wood I carry a six iron an eight iron and then I carry a pitching wedge sand wedge and a lob wedge and a putter and I've got everything covered so I know my seven wood, if I hit it, it's going to go 170, you know, maybe. I, I can squeeze a six iron. If I hit a hard low hook, I can get 160, 170 out of that. So, I'm, you know, I'm covered. And you know what? If I have the wrong club, I'll just lay up. That's all. I don't care. I play a lot of 420-yard par fours, driver, eight iron, lob wedge. Fine. So that's my point. You find a different way to play the game. And uh, I'm, I just get a sense. I don't talk to a lot of golfers about it. Um, I talk to managers and superintendents all the time, but my sense is that's what people are doing. Um, and, and great. So it's just, this is like the British model, go out and play golf. Um, and, um, I think it's really healthy. My guest is, is Brad Klein and Brad, I want to get back on the, on the business side of things, looking at how, uh, courses are maintained right now and this balancing, balancing act that superintendents are doing to try and keep staff on the payroll uh, while uh, continuing with uh, partial closures, partial openings, things of that nature. You wrote recently about a Long Island facility that is rotating its maintenance staff to make sure that staffers are getting several shifts each week. Yeah, you know, uh, first what's going on is superintendents are coordinating what they're doing much more with the management that is the pro shop and the general manager. So for example, I see a lot of courses, if they're going to open, they'll open an hour later than normal to give the staff time to do the mowing. 
uh, every club I know of is on some altered staffing level. Uh, many of them have cut completely or they're down to three people. Uh, I wrote ab about a Meadowbrook club, an old historic club on Long Island, John Carlone, veteran superintendent. And he's got a staff. He was able to keep them on uh, by putting them on a 27 hour week. I think he's paying them for 40 right now. But what he's done is he split the crew in order for, to provide for social distancing because you don't want crowding in the maintenance building and you don't want a, uh, too many people converging at the same point. So he split his crew. I think it's seven a day, uh, Monday, something like Monday, Wednesday, Friday. The others uh, work Tuesday, um, Thursday, Saturday. And uh, the first thing they do in the morning is they disinfect the place and they scrub up. They have their lunch in the car. They don't converge in the, in the, in the, in the meeting room. Uh, the chalkboard's pretty quiet because the assignments are simple. Go out and uh, everybody's doing a little bit more work, more work in, uh, on a day, but they're they're only working three days a week, and this gives everybody a chance to be fully employed. And um, so that kind of flexibility I'm seeing, and, and and of course John himself is mowing more than he used to because he's spending less time in the office. He has to chip in too. And everywhere I hear superintendents are out mowing, they're doing um, the, the cleanup. Uh, lap around the grains they're riding the top dresser equipment uh, they're out there as well and i'm hearing as well golf pros are on the mowers general managers do it. food and beverage people are doing it in order to keep their jobs so what you're seeing is a lot more inventive use of labor uh, and that can continue now what it also means is that the maintenance standards are probably going to be a little different uh, a lot of clubs are not raking bunkers every day uh, they're getting a little later out into the mowing patterns. So that's why you have the delay in the morning. Uh, you're seeing also for lots of reasons, uh, a separation of tea times on the pro shop side. They're letting people out, let's say on 10, 12 or 15 minute intervals. That gives more spacing in between. It actually helps pace of play, by the way. But it also creates a little more room for the crew to maneuver in between groups. So you're seeing all of these. Uh, the other thing I'm seeing on the management side is that some of these uh, equipment providers, you know, you have a lease for carts or for mowers or greens mowers or whatever, and you've got payments to make. A lot of these, and I'm going to try to get details in the next article I write, but a lot of these manu uh, big manufacturer suppliers are, are flexing the terms of the lease. So maybe they're waiving fees for the next three months and rolling it over so that the four-year contract gets extended on the back end. Now, that's a great way for building relationships. Uh, continuing uh, work with the club and giving folks a break and recognizing the situation that everybody's in. So I, I give a, a, a tremendous amount of credit to superintendents for being flexible. Uh, golf pros as well. Many of them are spending their time outdoors on as rangers from a distance, warning people, letting them know, you know, they sit in their car until they're ready to go up there and then they play away and they get the little reminder, you know, it's, it, it used to be uh, where the bathrooms and the halfway house are. Now it's about maintaining social distance. So everybody is contributing. Now, there are other business decisions that have to be made. But from an operations standpoint, I think the industry has done a remarkable job, not only in adapting their operations, but in communicating the importance of that to government and, and local officials. That's why the game has been able to uh, stay in place in about 35 states right now and when it's coming back in some more. New York just let it back, for example, uh, because the public officials recognize that it's an activity 
that has tremendous economic benefit and tremendous recreational benefit, and the clubs can be run responsibly. Now, that might not be a, a great long-term model, but it's certainly a good intermediate model till we know what's going to happen with loosening up uh, the standards and opening up the economy. Great stuff, Brad. I, I did want to finish up. Uh, you referenced earlier when you were talking about the promotion of the game and things of that nature. Uh, you seem to come back to the fun aspect of the game uh, and uh, the way you play, the way you uh, the, the way you approach the game. Uh, a fun part of the game that folks don't think about very much is something that you've got a good deal of experience in, and that's your time as a PGA Tour caddy. Uh, so let me put you on the spot briefly and. Can you share with us uh, an anecdote or a story or something that when you think back on those caddy days just makes you smile, some interaction that you've had? Uh, well, I mean, first of all, I, there's no relationship in all of sports as intimate and as sustained uh, as that between a caddy and his or her player. And that part was fabulous. I loved it. And I had a particular appreciation. Um, the, uh, you know, the, the moment that I remember most, uh, I caddied for Bernhard Langer in his U.S. debut at the World Series of Golf in 1981. And that was pretty exciting. I spoke German. I caddied in meters, took a lot of adjusting. um, And it was he was 24 years old. You know, now he's in his mid 60s. He's still making a fortune um, more than ever. But uh, then he was new to the United States. He was in the World Series of Golf over at Firestone. We're paired with Tom Kite. And uh, the. He holed out a seven iron uh, on the second hole, the par five, uh, to uh, go into the tie the lead, and he parred the third hole. He's got the lead going down four, and we had in those days you had a bib uniform. I'm looking up at the uh, label. The uh, I still have the Langer and the flag here in my office. Took it off the uniform, and I'm wearing it on the back, and uh, it's got a German flag and Langer and. Tom Kite was with us and he, we're walking down. I got to tell you, I was pretty nervous. I was 20, how old? 27 years old. I was really nervous. I had the lead on Sunday at a world series of golf. I'm thinking about a hundred thousand dollar first prize for him and what that would mean for me. I knew we were going to be on TV and Kite says to me, um, how's it feel to have, <laughs> it's funny. He says to me, how's it feel to have a German on your back? I said, Tom, I'm Jewish. He's leading. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> not exactly where I thought that story was going to go, but thank you. Uh, that was the best job I ever had. I still occasionally caddy. I've caddied for Jack Nicholas, of course, openings. Uh, and uh, Yanni Sang, I caddied for her when she was number one player in the world uh, at a charity event and a few other. And uh, I love doing it. Um, I'm kind of a caddy at heart. And uh, I, I have a lot of respect. I got to say this before we go. I have a lot of respect for your membership because the the architects, they have a kind of a skill set and an understanding of the game. And I think they've done a lot to help the game make uh, be more fun. You know, with the forward tees, for example, flexible setups, realizing that all those difficult courses they were building in the 80s and 90s didn't really make a lot of sense for the majority of golfers. And I, I have a lot of respect for the work that they're doing now, retrofitting, restoring, uh, making the golf course more of a, an, an enjoyable experience so it's not just for the scratch golfer it's for the 38 handicap or the newcomer or the family that just wants to hang out for a couple of holes and a couple of hours on a saturday afternoon so um you know that work will come back and um it's slowed a little bit right now but um 
that sort of retrofitting is part of the new adaptation of golf. And I think it's going to be a healthy uh, adjustment for the industry. We'll lose a few courses in the process, but we're going to save a game. My guest has been award-winning golf journalist, Brad Klein. Brad, thank you so much for your time. Mark, always a pleasure. That concludes this episode of Insights from ASGCA. I'm Mark Whitney. You can always find more information on ASGCA and golf course architecture at asgca.org. Thank you for listening, and please join us again. Until next time, so long.